Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Kirk Church Podcast. I'm Aaron Elmore, lead pastor at Kirk of the Hills, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is where you can hear messages from all our pastors and guest speakers. Make sure to subscribe and share with anyone who follows the Kirk. If you want to know more about us, visit us at thekirk.com, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram at the Kirk Church. Let's get started with today's episode. preaching on sin and we're getting serious about it and these are deadly sins and this morning we begin the first of the seven with perhaps the deadliest of the deadly the nastiest of the nasty nobody is leaving this morning without your toes getting stomped on hard we're talking about pride this morning and uh, I enjoy preaching on pride. I- I'm good at it. And so, um, good at pride, that is. <laughs> and I'm afraid we all are. Pride was at the root of the first human sin in the garden. Pride is what led Satan and the fallen angels to rebel against God. Pride indicates a lack of trust in God, a breakdown of fully loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Pride is the foundation of the disordered desires of our heart. So Pope Gregory the Great in the 6th century, he is credited with being the first one to write down the list of the seven deadly as they have been passed on to us today. And he stated very clearly that pride was the root of all evil. Theologians and church leaders down through the ages have agreed with this assessment, including C.S. Lewis, who called it the great sin, the essential vice, the utmost evil. So Sam Storms is pastor emeritus of a church over in the Oklahoma City area, Bridgeway Church, and he had a blog, and he wrote years ago an article called How Pride Poisons the Soul. And he said this, Is it an exaggeration? To say that pride is the underlying cause of all sin? I don't think so. If you would take the time to excavate your sin, I love that phrase, excavate your sin, beneath it all you would discover the rotting bones of pride and arrogance. Every one of these sins grows from the same deadly taproot, pride. Simply put, pride is that ugly part of your heart that causes you to be more concerned about yourself and your own reputation than you are about Christ and his. Ouch. Ouch. That's pride. So how is pride the root of other sins? Just just a few examples here. So scripture says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. But what is at the root of this greed, of this materialism, of this desire to acquire things? It's pride. It's an excessive love of self. It's desire for status and privilege and the things that money can buy us or we think. It's a disordered love of self. What's at the root of our anger and our frustration other than thinking that we are more important or than we have the better ideas or that our time is more valuable underneath our anger is pride. Lust involves fueling personal satisfaction at the expense of another, putting personal pleasure above the dignity of another human being, a rejection of the guardrails that God has placed around a good gift. Our lust is rooted in pride, in excessive self-love. 
Pride can be characterized many ways, but thinking through the lens of this sermon series, simply put, pride is excessive love of self. It's a disordered heart. It's thinking too highly of ourselves, taking too much credit, or maybe not thinking too much of ourselves, but simply thinking of ourselves too much. Because when we're thinking of ourselves too much, it means we are thinking of God too little. Pride, in this way, is idolatry. Idolatry of the highest and sneakiest order it is to make one's self an idol. Now, none of us is walking around consciously thinking about the fact that we're worshiping ourselves. That's really what we're doing at the end of the day. Psalm 10 verse 4 says, In his pride the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts there is no room for God. There's no room for God. When we're thinking of ourselves and thinking too highly of ourselves and taking credit for the good things in our lives. A prideful life is a life bent in on oneself, worshiping self rather than God. It's thinking that we're better than others and sometimes in very subtle ways. We don't even realize it. C.S. Lewis wrote this in Mere Christianity. He said, In God you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you don't know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Again, there are many verses that we could discuss setting ourselves up for this conversation on pride, but few which highlights the seriousness with which we must take this battle against pride and crush the head of the serpent in our lives, then James 4, 6, which says this, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's play a little game this morning, a game of would you rather. And when you put it in this light, it's not really very much of a game. It's not very fun. It's very serious because you think about this. Here's your choice. Would you rather be in opposition to God Almighty, who created everything, who understands everything, is in charge of all things, is the commander of the angel armies of heaven. Would you rather be in opposition to him? Or, better choice, would you rather be a recipient of his grace? That's what it says. I've read James many times. I've studied it. I never thought specifically of the lens of pride. And this verse is really powerful if you think about it. It doesn't say that God overlooks. It doesn't say God dismisses, that God doesn't like. It says God opposes the proud. When we are acting in pride, we are in opposition to God's glory. We are not fully reflecting who we were created to be. We were created to reflect the glory of God, and when we're trying to take credit for ourselves rather than giving the glory to God, we are in a prideful position, and God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So would you rather? Would you rather be in opposition to God or recipient of his grace? And I think the choice is obvious, which means we need to grow in humility. Now, you may have noticed this morning the verse that we just read from Philippians is not 
directly about pride. It doesn't mention the word pride at all, but I think it gets at it very specifically. Because the way that we overcome pride, the way that that pride is rooted out of our life is not through working hard and focusing on trying not to be prideful. The way that you become or the way that you oppose pride in your life is through seeking the opposite, through becoming a person who reflects the humility of Christ. It's through growing in humility. And so that, for that reason, this morning, we're not going to focus on the pride piece. We're going to focus on what we're saved into, right? Because we're not just saved from something, pride, idolatry of self. We're saved to something, which is to grow in the humility of knowing Christ and being used by him. We're saved for something, humble, selfless love in the body. So since we're jumping in the middle of a letter, just really quick, some context. Let's remember that Paul is in jail when he's writing this. That's always a little helpful to put things in context. He's writing to a church that he visited and helped establish during his second missionary journey. And he's writing to them to thank them for their support, to encourage them to hold fast to the gospel in the midst of the challenges they're facing, in particular, the opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ that this church is facing. And he says, the only way you're going to hold fast to this is if you are unified. If you're unified. That is an important message of the book of Philippians. You have to be unified in order to move forward with the gospel calling that has been placed on your life. And you have to work hard to maintain unity. And the importance of this unity, I believe, is no less critical for us in the church today to face the challenges that we are facing. We have to be unified. And unity doesn't come natural in a sinful, fallen, broken world. It's what we were created for, but now it has become very unnatural. The kind of unity that we're talking about, Christ-like humility, loving and serving the world, loving enemies, taking up your cross daily, bringing the light, hope, and gospel to the dark places of the world, this could only be described as a supernatural unity. Because you know what it requires? It requires humility, which doesn't come natural to us. We need God to work it into our hearts and lives. So Paul begins this section of the letter. He reminds the church of the unity they have. Verse 1, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, sharing in the Spirit, tenderness and compassion to make my joy complete by being like-minded and having the same love and being one in spirit and one in mind. The unity of the church is built around humble, selfless love for others. But what does it mean to be of one mind? It means that we're all going to have the same opinion on everything. No. It means we're all going to have the same preferences. Nope. We're all going to have the same gifts and passions. Nope. It means that we have an essential oneness, a unity in Christ, not just in our beliefs, which is the foundation, but in our practice. We selflessly love one another. We treat one another as family. We have a unity in spirit and purpose, unlike anything the world has ever known. It's really what we see people are striving for. We're we're trying to figure out how can we bring people together and help them get along. And the most unifying force in the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's designed to bring people together who are very different. But they're unified 
in their love for Christ. But this requires self-sacrifice. It requires self-denial. It requires having a perspective of serving rather than being served. It means giving up our personal rights, things that we feel that we're entitled to for the good of the body. And we've seen this as a group of believers. We've been through many changes as an organization, and it requires at times you saying, hey, you know what? That might not have been the decision I would have made, but for the unity of the body, I'm going to be supportive. I'm going to say, you know what? That's a non-essential thing. We have our unity in Jesus Christ. And and if you're a member of this church, in fact, this last week I just sat with a guy and he joined the church and we went over his member vows and I was reminded again that all of us who have committed to membership here, we've made a promise that through the grace of God we will pursue the purity and the unity and the peace of the church. That takes work. It takes intentionality. It takes humbling ourselves. It takes, at times, denying ourselves and our preferences and our rights because what matters the most is the body. And that's a very countercultural thing because we live in a culture that, that prizes and values individual freedoms. And trust me, there's a lot of good to that. I'm not complaining about the place in the world that, that God has dropped me. Okay, it's a wonderful place to live. But some of those values that we have, we have to push back against those and understand those within the Bible. And sometimes our cultural surroundings have led us to be too individualistic and too much focused on personal rights when being a part of the body of Christ requires sacrificial love and denial. But after all, our our movement was led by a leader who did that in the greatest way. And so that's what we're going to see as we move forward in this passage. So unity requires humility. Verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Humility requires an outward-focused rather than a self-focused life. We're not left to wonder what this will look like. We have the example of Christ. But in the original culture in which Paul is writing, humility was not generally esteemed as a virtue in the Greco-Roman world. And if we're honest, it's really not valued today. I mean, none of us likes the really arrogant, obviously proud person, unless, of course, they're a business leader and they're successful, or they're a politician and they're successful, and then we kind of ignore it, sweep it under the rug. That's another sermon for another day. But we don't really value the Christ-like humility that we are talking about here. They didn't value it then, and we don't value it today. Humility that is honoring and serving and loving and deferring, listening, kind, gracious, patient, God-honoring, that is a supernatural humility that comes from above. Verse 3, it says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. The life of a Christ follower is characterized by treating others as the more important person. Now, it's not just totally denying your own needs. We're going to get to that in just a minute in verse 4 and clarify. But it is of treating other people of high importance. And how do we do that? Well, James tells us, Again, to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. That's a practical way that we can consider others more highly than ourselves is by listening to them. Really listening. It's hard. 
It takes hard work to really listen. Usually we're just thinking about whatever smart thing we're going to say next or, you know, whatever. We're not really engaged. We're quick to speak and we're slow to listen and quick to anger. The opposite of all three of those. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. That is a way that we defer to others and show them value. Be willing to do the job that no one else wants to do. Right? Just basic servant leadership. When we understand grace, we're humbled. We have the desire to serve others because God has first served us. It's the radical truth of the gospel. When we understand that we have everything we need in Christ, we approach relationships with the mindset of what can I give rather than what can I get. Again, that's not normal human behavior. We're normally programmed to be transactional. Right? I'll give as long as I can get something out of it. The radical call of the gospel is you have everything you need in Christ. May the perspective of your life be to give yourself away in service to others. And yet, verse 4, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. The new NIV doesn't translate it quite like that. The old one didn't. I'm not really sure. Those guys are way smarter than I am. But I did use the ESV on this particular translation of this verse because I think it's clarifying. I think that the context of all of Scripture tells us that it's not denying all of your own needs in order to take care of others, but it's looking not only to your own needs, but also to the needs of others. And many of us, our problem is we get too focused on our own needs. Now, there can be the opposite. There can be a kind of pride that is actually self-loathing, that thinks too low of one's self. Romans 12, 3 says this, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but think of yourself with sober judgment. Sober judgment. What does that mean? Well, if you're not sober, you're not seeing reality clearly. Yes? You have a distorted view of reality. But if you are sober, you see things clearly. And he says, see yourself clearly, accurately. Have an accurate view of yourself, which is not too high, but is also which is not too low. Because you're a sinner, but you're saved by grace, right? You're being redeemed. So the Christian is not to have too high a view of themselves, but also to realize who you are in Christ and not to have too low. A number of years ago, I was preaching on the Romans passage here, and I used the example of marshmallows. I don't know if any of you remember this. But I brought in some of those little itty-bitty tiny little mini marshmallows, and then I had the just sort of normal-sized marshmallows, and then I brought some of those jumbo, big old puffed-up marshmallows. And I said, look, we're not to be puffed up, and we're not to be itty-bitty. The perfect marshmallow for a s'more is just the normal medium size. So be a good s'more for the glory of God, right? Have an accurate view of yourself. You're not like this, and you're not like this, right? In between, an accurate view of self. Because there, again, there is a kind of pride on either end of the perspective. Brian Hedges points out in his little book, love the title, Hit List, Taking Aim at the Seven Deadly Sins. He points out that pride takes several common forms. Self-righteousness, self-pity, and self-promotion. Maybe you can find yourself in at least one of those three. So how do we grow in humility? We need practices that reshape our hearts. We need to refocus our loves. We need to learn the unforced rhythms of grace. And one of the most fundamental ways that we learn or we relearn new behavior is through imitation. 
imitation. We follow others. And we have the example of Jesus Christ. We also have the gift of other people in our lives. That's how we learn as children. We imitate those around us, sometimes for good, sometimes for evil, but we imitate those around us. And so we have a responsibility as we imitate Christ to say, follow me as I follow Christ. Now that means don't follow me as I don't follow Christ. And ultimately we're pointing people to Christ, but we can and we ought to be an example for others to follow because that's how people learn to do things. How do you learn how to become a humble person? You find someone that you see in that and you seek to become like them. You imitate their behavior and their lifestyle. And so we have the example of Christ. The second half of this verse begins with the humility of Christ. Verse 6. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He emptied himself of status and privilege. He voluntarily stepped out of heaven into earth. He gave his life up on the cross. It was not taken from him. He voluntarily entered into brokenness and suffering, the suffering of humanity, so that we could know what God is like. And he could bridge the infinite gap between a holy God and sinful people. He took on the nature of servant. He became human. He moved into the neighborhood. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. While he had every right to stay comfortable, to stay in the position of power, he left the comfort of heaven to serve us because of his love for us. And that is our example to follow. We serve a God who served us. But the truth is, any of us, if we were given power and we were given authority, if we were king for the day, if we were principal for the day of the school, we would abuse that power. We would use it to have people do what we want to do, to execute our ideas, to serve us. Think about a person who has great wealth and great power and great influence. They have to do less and less. And they may choose to do still, but the more you have and the more influence and the more money you have, you can just have everybody do all the work for you. That's why some of the most powerful, famous, richest people in the world are absolutely miserable because they don't know what it means to serve. So those of us who do have riches, who do have wealth, who do have power, the reason why Jesus said it's hard to enter the kingdom of heaven is because you don't always understand what it means to serve. So don't let your power, don't let your influence rob you of true life which is found in serving because the one who had the greatest power the greatest authority the greatest influence became a servant he served us now verse 6 it says he made himself nothing he emptied himself he took on the very nature of a servant this passage which was designed to bring unity sadly has brought disunity because people disagree about how to interpret this passage I'm not going to get lost in the details, but the bottom line of it here is that Jesus didn't give up his godness. He didn't give up his essential attributes. He was still fully God. But he displayed the nature of God in the form of a servant. He didn't give up the nature of God to become a servant. He displayed what it means to be God in the form of a servant. He gave up the status and the position of being equality with God. He didn't consider that something to be held on to, but he leveraged his influence and his authority to do what needed to be done, to to express his selfless love for us. 
Though Jesus is worthy of being served, he forsook all the glory and honor, and he came to serve and give his life for us. So too the church. We are an institution that exists to serve. We are the church. We are the body. The church isn't here to just serve your needs. Yes, we do love you. Yes, we do care for you. But the church doesn't exist just to serve you. You are the church. And therefore, you as part of the church exist to serve the world. That is our posture. It is a posture of outwardness and a posture of service. And this then leads to exaltation. The humility of Christ ultimately leads to his exaltation. He came to be the suffering servant, but ultimately he came so that he might be Lord of all, that he might receive the glory. In contrast to the lowliness of his death on the cross, the Father elevates Jesus to the highest place of honor. And when we practice humility in our lives, Similarly, Jesus is exalted. We're not the ones exalted, right? Jesus humbled himself so that God would exalt him. We humble ourselves so that he also might be exalted. Rather than being in opposition to God, our lives bring glory to God as we humble ourselves and we say it is only by the grace of God. It is his work through us that has changed us because left to our own devices, we won't be humble people. We'll be prideful. We'll turn in on ourselves. We'll love ourselves too much. And therefore, we'll love all the things and desires of our heart that will mess us up. We need transformed hearts. This is the path toward genuine humility, to recognize Jesus for who he is, to recognize his holiness, his goodness, his faithfulness, to see the love and the glory of God in the face of Christ And by contrast, our absolute helplessness and nothingness. The degree to which the humility of Christ will be worked into our hearts is directly proportionate to an elevated view of who Jesus is, what he has done, and how much he is exalted in our heart and our lives. We were ultimately created to be humble to glorify God. In our sinful nature, we don't do this naturally, so we need to be recreated from the inside out. We need our hearts to be rebuilt, reordered, so that our loves are set right, and we don't excessively love ourselves. We don't love ourselves too little. That doesn't bring God glory either. We're people made in the image and likeness of God. We're incredibly valuable. We are children of God. But we recognize where that goodness comes from. We don't think too high. We don't think too low. We think rightly about ourselves, and we give God the credit. It takes work. Again, that pride manifests itself in different ways for each of us, and it will be a lifelong process, and one day we'll get there, but each and every day we can take steps because we need to take pride seriously. It's underneath all of the other sins fueling them. So by the grace of God, let's become more humble Christ-like people together. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are gracious and you are merciful and you are patient and you do not treat us as our sins deserve. And God, if we're honest, we stand before you today as people who have pride, roots of pride deep within us, 
Maybe we haven't explored for a while. Maybe we've forgotten, and they're there all the while. And we ask, God, that the power of your Holy Spirit would bring holy fire to burn away all that is not of you. And you would make us holy and pure vessels for your glory. God, teach us the true path of humility, not a false humility that is prized by the world, but a true and genuine Christ-like humility. God, that as you work that into us, our lives would be different. There would be a different character to our lives. And that humility would point the way to the one who brings that humility, the one who is ultimately worthy, which is you, Father. So God, teach us that we are not worthy to worship ourselves, but you are the object of our worship that is truly worthy. And God, that as our love is transformed, we would become like the one that we love. So teach us not to love ourselves, but to love you with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.